0: Hello, everybody, and welcome in to episode number 145 of the Bible 2021 podcast. We are reading the ninth chapter of Romans today, and our focus is on how should Christians feel about Israel? Should we universally support Israel? Well, let me have a quick introduction for us today, because we got a lot to talk about, just allow me this, check out our website, Bible2021.com. You can subscribe to the show there, send us a question or comment, as well as read show notes. So a tricky question today and a controversial one for sure. I'm not asking the question necessarily because of the current troubles we've been seeing in Israel and Palestine, but rather because our text raises the issue and many Christians have strong opinions here. In my lifetime, it seems that the times of peace in Israel are generally outnumbered by the times of trouble in Israel. Why in the world is that? Why is the Middle East so often a hotbed of conflict and trouble? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but one stands out to me. At least in the Middle East, you have one small nation of Jewish people surrounded by many small and large nations of Islamic people. From the very beginning, it was prophesied in the Bible that there would be conflict between the sons of Abraham through Isaac and the sons of Abraham through Ishmael, the forebear of many of the Islamic peoples. Genesis sixteen eleven says, The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey; his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Well, so there's going to be conflict between uh, the those of Isaac and those of Ishmael. So, as Christians, whose side should we be on in these conflicts? Now, most Christians, or I guess most, uh, at least many, probably most. Christians would assume that we should always be on the side of Israel. But I tell you, and I used to be in that camp, the last couple of years, the few years of reading the Old Testament, uh, which I've done more in the last few years than any other time in my life, that sort of convinced me that supporting Israel in every decision and situation might not be the most biblical approach to take. Now, before you tune me out, Let me try and explain myself by asking three questions that might be slightly offensive. Number one, should we always support fellow Christians? Well, we should certainly always love each other, no doubt about it. But sometimes a fellow Christian is wrong in doing something ungodly. How should we handle that? Well, Matthew 18 tells us, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, hey, it's going to happen, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Well, we shouldn't support each other when we are wrong. We should lovingly, humbly, and persistently call each other to righteousness. So many times in my life, I have been wrong, sinfully wrong, and I've had faithful brothers turn me from the error of my ways or various sins or pride issues or whatever. Now, almost always they did so lovingly, and honestly, I'm so grateful They didn't blindly support me in my sin or my folly or my wrong opinion, whatever it might have been. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we need accountability. Not everything Christians do is good and godly. Second question, should we always support preachers? Hmm. Well, I am a preacher and a pastor. I've been a pastor for, I don't know, 20-something years. And I suggest, actually, I don't just suggest, I'm going to tell you straight up, the clear answer to that question is no. When Southern Baptist preachers in the South preached that slavery was God's will and a good thing and that God wanted it to happen, church members and others should have opposed that as as strongly as possible from the Word of God. You can't support garbage like that. When church leaders sweep the sexual abuse of women and children under the rug and shame the victims instead of removing the perpetrators, that should not be supported either, but vigorously opposed. Friends, sometimes Preachers and pastors are wrong. Not everything preachers and pastors do is godly. You know that. So, not everything a pastor or preacher does should be supported. Uh, how about this? Should we always support Americans? Absolutely not. Christians are not called to a blind nationalistic devotion, no matter what country we're in. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. The U.S. has done much good in the world. We've, the U.S. has defended many nations and opposed many tyrants. Unfortunately, we've also done much evil in the world. A few examples, the Tuskegee experiment, the toppling of a democratically elected leadership in Iran in 1953, the Trail of Tears, and much, much less seriously than those, Operation Big Buzz and Operation Big Itch, in which our military dropped hundreds of thousands of fleas and mosquitoes, not making this up, on U.S. soil to test and see if they could be weaponized and used to to spread disease. Now, to be clear, the fleas and mosquitoes that were dropped were not infected with disease. They just wanted to see if you could actually drop them from a plane and get them to land on people and bite them and all that kind of good stuff. And aside from all that, when American leadership is leading the country in an ungodly direction, this must be appropriately opposed by Christians. Not every governmental or military policy decision the United States makes is good or just. Likewise with Israel. Not every military decision or policy decision that the nation of Israel makes is godly or morally correct. I know this partially because of common sense, but even more from the word of God. Israel and Judah had a total of 43 kings that are listed in the Old Testament of the Bible. How many of those leaders of God's people were reckoned as righteous and good by God? The answer according to the Bible is Only seven or eight, if you fudge a little bit and count Solomon as righteous. Of the seven or eight, of the 43 kings of Israel and Judah were good kings. That's like around one-sixth. Now, four to five were sort of a mixed bag, a little good, a little bad. Uh, The rest were reckoned as evil and wicked by God's word, and they were mostly opposed by godly figures in the Bible like Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micaiah, Elijah, Elisha, and others. Should those wicked kings have been supported when they were in power? Of course not. I don't believe they should have. So I conclude that you and I should not universally support those who call themselves Christians or preachers or the United States or Israel. Well, what should our attitude be towards Israel? Well, I'm going to suggest our attitude as Christians toward the nation of Israel should be one that goes far beyond mere support. And the Apostle Paul, a Jewish man himself, tells us exactly the kind of attitude and posture that we should have towards Israel in the first five verses of our chapter today. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Now look, When I read that, I hear incredible love, willingness to sacrifice everything, and the utmost respect from Paul for the nation of Israel. Friends, that should be our attitude towards Israel. We don't support every decision they make, but we love them sacrificially, we pray for them passionately, and we desire for them to follow God's ways and come to Jesus, who was a Jewish man himself, and is their Messiah, Lord, and Savior. Here's Spurgeon with a few words on that. He says... The Apostle Paul is evidently in this passage about to make an extraordinary statement when he says, I speak the truth in Christ, a statement which would probably not be believed at first and therefore he gives as a preface the most solemn asseverations that are permitted to Christians. That he is speaking the truth, and also that the Holy Ghost is bearing witness with his conscience. That is, that he loves the souls of his fellow countrymen so much that, though the thing could never happen, yet in a sort of way of love, he could devote himself to anything as long as his countrymen might be saved. Paul did not write, As he did, because he hated the nation to which he belonged, far from it, he would have sacrificed everything for their good, and he felt almost ready to be cast away himself if, by such a fate, he could have rescued the Jewish people. Passionate love speaks a language which, which must not be weighed in the balances of cold reasoning. View the words as the outburst of a loving heart from Paul, and they are clear enough. Oh, that all Christians had a like love for perishing sinners. Amen. Well, let's read our passage. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. The temple service and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children, by physical descent, who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons have not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, Why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. But as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of armies had not left us our offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Look! I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Amen and amen. We close with our memory verse for the month of May, Matthew 28:18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Amen. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.